going to do something a little bit different this morning than I normally would do. Uh, if you're, if you're, if, uh, if in in uh, 2022 we went through the book of Matthew, in 2023 we've committed to the book of Genesis, and today, last week we kind of set up the whole book of why we talk about Genesis. This week we're going to dive in, and we'll be talking about Genesis one. And so if you have a piece of paper and there's a pen in front of you, I'm going to ask you to do, in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to, uh, if you want, you don't have to do it if you don't want to, um, but we're going to read through the story of Genesis 1. It's probably one you've heard before. It's one that most people, even if you're not familiar with church, have heard before. It's the creation story. And I'm going to, what I want to ask you to do is, I, if you do know where the story goes, which you probably do, try to clear that from your mind for the, for the morning. Uh, what I want you to do is, as we read through Genesis 1, I want you to do your best to try to draw the story as it comes up. So read the words, and as literally as you possibly can, draw what it says. Now, we have a number of days, so you might want to separate it. Maybe, maybe you want to make one picture that covers the whole thing. I feel like that would be difficult. Or maybe a series of pictures, whatever it looks like. Uh, I know we have good artists. I know we have terrible artists. I'm not drawing. That's why that's nice. I get to stand here and not draw and show you guys that. Uh, but I'm curious in how you will all draw the picture of Genesis 1. It's something I did steal from another campus, so South Harbor and Fairhaven are doing it too, but I thought it might be fun. So that's what the, that's what the pages are coming out for. If you don't want to do it, save paper and put it back in the back. Um, but if you do, I, I, I'm excited to see what happens. Yes. Uh, and if your grade is too low, I don't know what happens, but it'll be bad. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, one other thing, as we're handing those out, uh, last week we talked about um, uh, we, the fact that we have produced a, a companion to our series, a book that walks us through the entire book of Genesis, um, a little devotional that works great for, for uh, family devotions or individual ones. Um, if, you're, if you weren't here last week, here they are. This is what they look like. We have some in back. Um, just to let you all know, they, they're free for you to take. However, they do cost us $10 to make. So if you're able, if you take one, one, don't take one unless you're going to use it, right? Don't just take it and let it sit there. But two, uh, if you're able to help us cover the cost, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Again, $10 a book. You can drop it in the, in the little metal thing back there if you, if you want. Um, that just helps us continue to make more. They, they, we have, we, uh, also, if you were here last week and wanted one, we ran out because they were really, really popular. Um, we have more. Um, they're back there. Uh, if we go through all of those, let us know again, and we can look at getting some more from another campus or making another order. Um, but uh, take a look at these. They're a great companion as we move our way through the book of Genesis. All right. Did I get everything that we needed? Yes. All right. We can get started. So last week, uh, we talked about, we, we asked ourselves a big question as we were beginning the book of Genesis. We actually began the book of Genesis in Luke, if you remember, which is a way, strange way to start. But we asked ourselves the question, why Genesis? Last year, we, we put a focus on Matthew and looking at the stories of Jesus and how we, how we live as disciples of Jesus in that space. And, we, and like we just said, we wanted to commit to continue to move into that space in 2023, which led us to the question, why Genesis? Why would we start there? Why wouldn't you go to the book of Acts? Why wouldn't you go to some of the New Testament stuff where it talks about discipleship? And last week we said it's because where we begin the story matters. Right? We looked at when Jesus is talking about his story, he goes back to Genesis time and time again. Whether it's in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whether it's when Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, said, he pushes back to Moses and the, and the prophets. Whether it's Paul as he begins with the creation story, or the, or the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, were constantly being pushed back to the beginning. And so last week, we saw that where we begin the story matters, and even where we begin in Genesis matters. Because last week we said, for many of us in church, we begin our story at Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall, that we're all broken and so somehow have to earn God's love back. It's a mindset that many of us have wrestled with. I actually got a chance to talk to many of you last week, and that resonated with you, that your church experience was one of, yes, I understand that I'm adopted into God's family, and so I need to prove that I'm good enough for that or something like that. 
But we talked about how that's beginning the story in Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, as we'll see today, God creates us because he wants to be with us, to enjoy time with us. That we're created in God's image as valuable inherently. Yes, we have brokenness in our lives. We just saw that a second ago. Yes, we got to work our way to push back on the sin in our lives because it's hurting us. That's all true. Genesis 3 still exists, but... We do it as beloved children of God, not to earn God's love, we said last week. This week, we're going we're gonna to begin in Genesis and take a look at it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, this year. And, I, and I'm actually, I will, I'll be straight up and honest with you. When, when it got pitched as we're going to do Genesis this year, Lisa knows I pushed back on it a bit. I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm into it. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I pushed back, and, uh, and it, but... We, we work in a network, and so there was, a, there was a debate, and the debate went towards Genesis, and so I, I didn't particularly get my way in that one. And at the same time, I, am, I can honestly say I'm really glad I didn't. Uh, sometimes that's the way it works, right? For me, what I've found is that, that often when, I, when we start to slow down and take a deep dive into, um, uh, into a particular book, all of a sudden, all these beautiful new things come out that you never saw before. It happened when we did Matthew. It's happened in a number of other books that I've done over the years, even books like Judges, which are, are tricky. And I, I've seen that already as we begin in this series as well. That already in Genesis 1, and I hope you'll see it today, that there are layers and layers and layers of beautiful things that just expand our understanding of who God is and how he relates to us. And so, if I was resistant at the beginning, I'm all in and excited for Genesis this year. I think it's going to change the way uh, that we interact with God and that we see each other, and maybe, hopefully, as we talk about today, even how we read the Bible. So let's get started. Today we're going to be in Genesis 1. If you want to follow along, we're going to work through the creation story, so that's where we'll be. Uh, But before we get started, I do want to set expectations a little bit. So whenever we read a book like Genesis, maybe some of you were hoping as we came in here today that to, 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 to tackle some uh, topics, uh, things like some of the weirder things that happened in Genesis. So for instance, um, uh, when we talk about Genesis 1 in particular, you, there's an age-old debate that comes out of this particular passage, right? Was the earth created in a literal seven days? Over the course, or over the course of a long, long series of time, right? That, that's a question that, that, that gets asked out of this particular passage a lot, right? And, and there's been debates, there's been churches split over all of those things. And unfortunately this morning, I want to set expectations because if that's why you came here to study Genesis 1 this morning, I think I'm going to disappoint you, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, as we work our way through Genesis, what we'll realize is that if we're going to try to tackle those kinds of things, we can get really distracted and we can go down a lot of rabbit trails and not get where we were hoping to go. And so we're, we're, we're actually we're going to, to not talk about those things this morning. Um, <clears throat> and, and we're actually, through as we move our way through Genesis, that's going to happen a number of different times, uh, especially in the first 11 chapters, Right? I mean, not long from now, we'll be talking about the flood, which raises a whole bunch of questions as well, or the Nephilim, which is a weird one, right? Uh, if you don't know what that is, you, you read Genesis 6, 8, Genesis, one of those two, can't remember now. But it's, a, it's another weird, weird thing that happens in there. Or the Tower of Babel, for instance. Those, those strange questions will pop up in Genesis, and, and we could deal with those. And I actually love to. I can nerd out for a really long time, and I mean really, so just get ready if you do ask questions about those. Um, but we have to do that over coffee, not on Sunday morning. So feel free to come and have a discussion with me about it. I'm happy to share uh, where I've been, what I've thought about it. But this morning, we're going to take a different approach because I think there's a beauty in those things that gets lost if we go down those particular rabbit trails. Which leads us into what I want to actually talk about this morning. Last week, we saw that it's important that where we start the story is super, super important. That, that, we're, that where, we, where, we, where our story starts matters a lot. This week, uh, we're going we're to be looking at a, a different kind of statement. Where we start the story matters, but also how we read the story matters. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Our goal this morning is to explore how we read the Bible, and in some cases, how not to read the Bible. How do we read the Bible and get the most out of it? 
learn the most about who God is and what he's trying to communicate with us. As we read through Genesis, that's what we're going to be focusing on a lot. We can debate whether Genesis is, or whether creation is seven days or a billion years. We can do that, and that's important in some spaces. But is that actually what Moses is trying to communicate with us when he writes that story? Or is it the only thing he's trying to communicate with us when he writes that story? That's what we'll look at this morning. We do that uh, in Genesis 1. And like I said, we're going to do that by reading through the creation story. I want to encourage you with the papers that were handed out earlier, that as I read this story, to try to draw it as well. Right? Again, forget if you, that you know where the story is going and just try to draw each section as we read it. Uh, Risa is actually going to leave those verses on the screen so you'll have time to look at them. Some of them will feel fast, but we'll give you time to draw in the midst of that. I'd love to see your, see your pictures at the end. All right, we ready to dive in? All those different caveats? All right, here we go. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right. We'll we'll pause there for now. Go ahead and start drawing that. Nice and easy, right? But before we move on, uh, we're going to talk about the first tool that we're going to need as we work our way through Genesis. Whenever you, so we're going, to, we're going to give you three tools this morning on how to read the Bible, and it will, it will be super applicable to the passage we read today and also to Genesis, but hopefully you can apply them as you read in different spaces in the Scriptures as well. <clears throat> so the, question, the first question, and Reese will throw it up and then go back to this verse for me as I kind of made it tricky for him here. But what, uh, <clears throat> one important question you should ask yourself each time you look at a story or passage in the Bible is this, what kind of story am I reading? What kind of story is this? This question is so important, especially when we're asking questions like, should we read the Bible literally? It's probably a debate that you might have heard if you've been around Scripture at all, right? Maybe you've heard phrases like, just do what the Bible says, which, by the way, I agree with. I do agree with that, but we better then make sure we understand what the Bible is actually saying, right? So do we read the Bible literally? Well, and the question then is depends on what we mean by literally. Most often what rides with that question is an assumption. The assumption is what we mean by literally is that we look at it through the lens of the scientific method. Most people in Western cultures, that's what they mean. That when we read scripture literally, we do it using a certain pattern or order. What I mean by that, so inside of the scientific method, which is a 20th century invention, Accuracy and truth are inseparable, right? I don't know if you've thought about that before, but that's, but that's true, right? In, in our understanding of what things are true, accuracy and truth cannot be separated at all. Uh, I'm trying to find a good example to give out here, but I can't. If I was to say there are seven candles on the windows, you would all look at me and say, Brent, that's not true because there are eight, right? There are eight candles uh, on the there's eight windows, and so there's one candle per each window. In that space, truth and accuracy are together. Now, the, what we, that's the, 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 for us in the Western world, it's, only, it's nearly impossible for us to separate those two ideas. That's not the way it was in, in Jesus' time or in the Old Testament. That concept just wasn't there. The scientific method didn't exist. That's not how, they, that, how people saw the world. They saw it entirely differently. For instance, if you were to go to Matthew and say, hey, I was, I was able to look at the feeding of the 5,000, and I counted, and there were 5,078 people there. So, Matthew, you lied. He'd look at us and go, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't matter at all. There were around 5,000 people there. I communicated the truth that I was trying to communicate. That's how the Old Testament works. That's how the New Testament works. The, these ideas, of, of the, it's a totally different kind of concept of what truth and accuracy are. Now, that's not to say we don't read the Bible literally, but it does mean that we have to read it on its own terms. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Bible was written far before the scientific method was invented, and so it, makes, it means that then we need to do work to understand what the literal thing it's trying to communicate is. 
If we don't, we can get into some really messy, messy spaces. We can spend entire lives debating things that the biblical authors never intended us to. We can spend time doing weird kinds of math to try to figure out things like the Da Vinci Code, which isn't real. We can get into some really messed up spaces. So when the Bible tells us a story, what does it literally mean? And we, could, we realize that becomes tricky because there are lots of ways to tell a story, aren't there? There, there are, we can tell stories like a report, like the news. Now, I'm not even going to open up the fact that news spins everything now. Let's pretend news is still news, right? It's not, but let's pretend it is, right? There are reports. So, for instance, yesterday at 1025, this thing happened at this location and these people were involved. That's the, what news is supposed to be, right? A report of, a, of facts that happened. It, uh, it's, it, you know, just the facts, sir, right? Like the, those, the, that's one way we can tell a story is in a report. And there are parts of the Bible that function like that. They tell us what happened. They tell us how it happened. They tell us who's involved and when it happened. Uh, there are large sections of the scriptures that do that thing. If we're reading a report or reading history in that way, we interpret it a certain way. And there are sections of the scriptures that we should interpret through that particular lens. But... We also realize there are other ways to tell a story too, isn't there? Right? I, I could tell you a story about a boat that sunk. Right? There was a major storm on Lake Superior, August 7, 1957, and as a result, a, late, a large freighter sunk to the bottom of the lake. I could tell you a story reporting the facts. You just got the facts. Or I could just play this instead. Too long of an intro. Wait for it. Not this. This is not what I was playing. There it is. Now, this is a good test for a true Michigander because some of you out there are going, what the heck is this song all about? And some of you got big smiles and can't even stop your head from bobbing, right? I see it. For those of you who didn't grow up in Michigan or don't have good northern blood in you, even if you did, my wife didn't know this song, and I was like, what? Jen! Look, I, the collective groan is so satisfying. Thank you for that. I needed it. What's that song? Who knows it? The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, right? We should have played that longer. That's a great line, and we cut it off too soon, right? Um, but uh, I get it. It's obscure. I was, it was more for a joke than anything. But the point still stands, right? I, you can, you, I could give you a news report about how that story went down, or I could play that particular song. Now, in that song, we do get some of the facts of what happened, right? He actually does a pretty decent job of breaking it down, but, but there are other sections that are a little bit different. For instance, he says the winds were like hurricanes, like it was like a hurricane that hit Lake Superior. But we know that hurricanes don't hit Lake Superior, right? And so that we know that factually there was no hurricane on Lake Superior that particular day, but the point that he's trying to make is that the winds whipped like a hurricane so that we can kind of experience what's going on, Right? That he tells the story through song to kind of get us emotionally connected to it, to give us imagery that helps us experience what's happening in this particular space. We can tell a story by reporting the facts. We can also tell a story by writing a song or a poem. And they do different things. Both of them are communicating truth about what happened, but focusing on different parts of that truth. And we have that throughout the Bible as well. We have sections of the Bible that read like reports, and we ought to interpret them that way. But we have also have large sections of the Bible that are written in poetry or with word pictures, in song. The whole book of Psalms functions that way. Throughout each of the scriptures, we have poetry and psalms and songs that are sung to communicate truths like, like Gordon Lightfoot does in the, song, in the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. If we're reading a report, we interpret it a certain way. If we're reading or listening to a song, we interpret it a different way, don't we? When you're reading poetry, you understand that they're trying to capture something different. In, in, in the Psalms, it talks about how God says, I took you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. Now, there's no debate over what that means. No one thinks that God created a, mag a humongous eagle to put the entire nation of eagle or entire nation of Israel on its back to fly them out of Egypt, right? It's not a debate we do because we understand how metaphors work. That God swooped them out of there and took them out using miraculous 
his miraculous power. So we have reports in Scripture. We have songs in Scripture. We also have sermons, right? Stories told to make a point. The prophets do that. The parables do that. It's a whole different kind of thing. But you get my point. Now, whenever I, now, one of the questions I most often get when someone is engaging with this kind of material for the first time is then, well, what prevents us then from under, does that prevent us then from understanding anything in the Bible? Right? If I don't like an interpretation of a report, can I just argue that it's poetry and just kind of make it a free-for-all? No. No, you can't. It's not how it works. As we'll see today, and I think it's pretty clear throughout Scripture, the Bible gives us a lot of clues into what kind of literature we're reading. Most of the genres throughout Scripture are actually very obvious, they're, right, <clears throat> if you do the work. Now, there are some disputed parts. Is this poem? Is this a parable? Is this, and we can wrestle with those things. But the general assumption is the biblical authors aren't trying to be tricky. They're writing so that you understand what they're trying to communicate. And so they've told us, hey, this particular section you're reading, here are the markers. It says it's poetry or it's history or whatever it might be. Which brings us back to that first question. Do we read the Bible literally? Sure. If we understand what that means. A better way to say it might be, how do we read the Bible literally? Okay. Keep that in mind. The first tool that we have is what kind of story are we reading? Back to our pictures. Hopefully, you've, had, uh, you've been able to draw that first part. Um, it's not easy, right? Like, as you actually take this part literally, we, we have to wrestle with some things, don't we? How do you draw formless and void? That's a tough part, right? Void means empty, nothing. But then there's also a deep... And that deep seems to have a surface, so what are we doing here, right? Uh, God's hovering over that surface of the water, so do we have, are we formless and void? Do we have nothing? Do we have water? Do we have a spirit hovering over it? What's going on? So I'm curious on how you all drew that. But let's keep going. You can feel free to keep drawing here too. Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so God saw the light, and it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Day one, God creates light, separates it from dark. So go ahead and figure out a way to draw that. But then he continues on in verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water from the vault, under, side of the water under the vault, from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So it might be a little bit trickier to draw, right? God creates water, and then he separates it from sky, but didn't we already have water? I thought we did, but it seems like he just created it here. And then there's this other thing. There's a vault. What is that all about? What do we do with that? Some really weird interpretations of that have gone out there, right? If you have ever followed any of the conspiracy theory stuff around flat earth, this is one of those places that suggests that there's a vault that God created, that maybe there's a cover to the earth? Is that what this is saying? I mean, maybe. It's not. But it's interesting to think about, right? Keep drawing. All right. Sorry, I'll slow down in just a second. I know there's a lot to draw here, but, you can, but you'll get a long section to draw in just a second. Verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land, and that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, maybe you've noticed the phrase repeated in the first two days, right? This idea of it's good, right? Now, I just wanted you, I wanted you to notice something. In the passage we just read, right, it, uh, God says on day three, it is good twice, which is kind of an interesting thing. And I actually, there's a cool uh, image that comes out of that inside of Jewish culture. God creates the land and says it's good, and then he creates the vegetation, and he says that's good too, Actually, that part was so meaningful to Jewish people that it's become tradition inside of Jewish families to be married on the third day of the week. Uh, 
Why? Because this double blessing for them is important, and they actually view it as a metaphor for marriage, which is pretty cool, right? God creates land and blesses it, but then the land itself produces fruit, and God blesses the fruit. And so they viewed that as a beautiful symbol for what marriage ought to be, right? God, first, God bless our marriage, the two becoming one. Bless that in that space. And then out of that space, they'd pray for children, and then God would bless them too. So it's kind of a cool image that comes out of Genesis 3, or 1, 3, I'm sorry, or the third day, the third day of Genesis 1. It's a cool image that comes out of the third day of Genesis 1. Uh, so next time you're reading it, you can kind of see that, this, the, this declaration that's good twice. Moving on, and then you'll get a long time to draw. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give the light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky and gave, earth, gave, light, on earth to govern the, gave light on earth to govern the day and night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So how many of you, when you were drawing day one, drew it with a sun? Some people would, okay, you jumped the gun. That was too early. You weren't allowed to do that. So you got to modify your picture, right? In day one, there is no sun. Not yet, right? You had to draw light and dark, but no sun, no, no moon, no stars. That comes in day four, right? But actually, what's interesting here is that in this particular thing, it also doesn't actually use the word sun or moon, does it? It, does, it actually says that God made two lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, which is a really weird way to talk about the sun and the moon, isn't it? And actually, it's so weird, it never happens again in Scripture. For the rest of Scripture, they'll use words sun and moon. So why, then... Does they talk about the sun and the moon as the greater and the lesser light here? Which brings us to the next tool I want to put in your biblical, Bible, biblical reading toolbox. The first step is what kind of story am I reading? We should ask ourselves that. Am I reading a report? Am I reading a song? Am I reading a uh, sermon? What am I reading? The second step is to find the elephant. What's the elephant in the room? What's something weird in this passage that doesn't seem to fit or that doesn't make a lot of sense? One of the favorite tools of the biblical authors is to put things in their stories that seem out of place or strange or to use unique language to make a point. And when you slow down <clears throat> as you're reading, you start to see them all over the place. And they're meant to draw your attention. And you get to ask the question, why is that there or why would they say it that way? When you see something that's weird or out of place, that, you do, that doesn't seem to make sense, that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the story, the, it's there on purpose to point, most of the time, almost all of the time, it's, it's meant to point you to something bigger. Now, as a collection, a collection of churches, we've been reading a book together, and I have it in my backpack, which is back there, and I was going to hold it up and show it to you, right? Uh, it's a book by Rabbi David Foreman. And he describes this technique, the technique of finding the elephant, as, as, as searching for biblical buried treasure. And he, he goes on to say that if we do the work, the Bible, the Bible often also gives us a treasure map that we need to find these particular elephants in the room and, and to also understand what's trying to be communicated. Now, as we've read through Genesis 1, we've already seen a number of elephants, haven't we? Some of which we pointed out already. Was the earth formless or in void, or was there water? God put a vault. Is there a ceiling on the earth? What do we do with that? God creates light day one, but sun on day four. How does that work? Or along those same lines, how do we even know one day to the next? Because we're actually told that the, the sun is the thing that calculates days and years, right? Well, how do we know one, day one through three even happened if we have no sun, right? How does that work? Or the question we just asked why doesn't the author say sun and moon rather than greater and lesser light? When we start to notice the elephants, we begin to engage with the beauty and depth that's written in Scripture. 
It works in Genesis 1 in a big way, but you'll see it throughout Scripture as well. Now, we'll come back to answer some of those questions in a bit, but let's keep going for now. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water team with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Day five, God fills the sky and he fills the seas, which is fantastic. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our, own, in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God creates land creatures, then the crown jewel, people, in his image, right? We talked about that last week, that in this space that God creates people in his image, and it's the only day that ends with him declaring things being very good. The story ends in chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished his work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. You have a lot to draw going forward here. Now, maybe you noticed something. It's subtle, but did you notice that, that I mean, I, you noticed it because I called it out, and I shouldn't have because of the thing I wrote next, but I did anyway. You noticed that, that day seven actually takes place in chapter two, right? Which is kind of weird. Now, maybe you're thinking because of the tools that we just gave you, elephant, right? There's an elephant. It's weird. Why is it in chapter two? No, I tricked you. It's not an elephant, right? Elephants need to, if you're looking for elephants inside of uh, scripture, you, uh, the only thing that you can't use is the, the chapter and verses because that's not part of the biblical writer's idea at all, right? So all of the chapters and verses in Scripture were added much, much, much later. Um, actually, much, much, much later after Jesus even. Um, scripture was not written with chapters and verses, so anything you find inside of chapter and verses doesn't count. So just go ahead and discount that. That's not the elephant in the room, right? It does, last, it does lead us to the question of like, is it, chapters and verses were added for organizational purposes. There's not spiritual significance to them. So there's my statement on that. But it does, ask, it does force us to ask the question, why would they choose to do that? Now, I don't know for sure, but I do actually have a theory, and I'll share it with you in just a minute. It does point us to the, to the last tool that I want to share you, with you this morning. So the tools that we see throughout Scripture, first, what kind of story am I reading? It matters in how we interpret it. Two, where are the elephants in the room? Where are the weird things that they're trying to point us to? And three, what are the patterns I'm seeing. Biblical authors love to use patterns. You'll see them throughout Scripture, words that are repeated, or a rhythm or a cadence in the way that you read. Those patterns are almost always pointing you towards something. It might be, what kind of literature am I reading? The pattern will help us understand that. Sometimes it's to make a different kind of point. And maybe you've already noticed Genesis 1 in particular is loaded with patterns. There are so many in Genesis 1, it's insane. For instance, there are repeated phrases. We see, and God said over and over and over and over again, don't we? 
which helps us understand John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? We have this idea that Jesus is the Word in, in John 1. We have this other phrasing of it was good and very good, right? And also the breaking of the pattern here matters too. Day 1 through 5, it was good. Day 6, it was very good. There's a similarity in the pattern and a difference to draw us to a different kind of understanding. We have this idea of evening and morning as well. It's a pattern we see over and over again. Actually, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, but if you go to Israel, even modern Israel, uh, they mark their days with evening and morning, not an arbitrary time at midnight, right? So in Western culture, our day, Thursday turns to Friday at midnight, right? Uh, in Jewish culture, Thursday turns to Friday at sundown, right? Evening and there was morning, then the third the day. So that's just something, now you know, a little bit of trivia. We also see in Genesis 1 that there's a cadence to it, isn't there? A rhythm, which tells us something. It tells us that Genesis 1 is a poem. Now, there are lots of disagreements on what Genesis 1 is trying to communicate. We mentioned that already. But no serious scholar would argue that Genesis 1 is not a poem. Maybe there are people out there that would, but nobody who has done any kind of work with it would argue that it's not a poem. What kind of story are we reading in Genesis 1? We're reading a poem, and the patterns help us see that. But there are a lot more patterns in Genesis 1, too, that are all communicating different things. So I'll go through them quickly, but they're all really cool. There's a pattern of three we see in Genesis 1. Barah, which is the Hebrew word for create, create, appears in three places. At the beginning of the story, at the middle of the story, and at the end of the poem, which is cool. We have this God created at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. We also see that there are three days of separation. God separates light and dark. He separates sky and sea. He separates sea from land. Three days of separation, followed then by three days of filling. God fills the, the, the light and the dark with the greater and the lesser light. He fills the land and the sea, and he fills the land after that. <clears throat> we also have multiple patterns of seven. There are seven words in Hebrew in the first verse. There are 14 words in the second, which is a double seven. And it was so is repeated seven times in Genesis 1. And God saw is repeated seven times in Genesis 1. There are 21 mentions of earth, which is seven times three, so you get double the three and the seven in that one. That one's pretty cool, right? And we could keep going. Actually, the rabbis argue there are over a dozen patterns of seven in Genesis 1, all of which are communicating something with us. Now, I do want to give this forewarning. Please be careful with biblical numerology. It's one of those things that gets the weirdest. Um, how many of you have ever read the book, The Da Vinci Code? They do a lot in that book. Interesting book, absolutely garbage theology. So you've got both, right? Um, they, to take the numbers and they, you can make them into... You, numbers are one of those things that you can manipulate and make some cool patterns out of you, and if they're not there, and that happens a lot. So things like The Da Vinci Code or... or Flat Earth conspiracy, some Q conspiracy, like all of those things can come out of biblical numerology. That's not what they're trying to communicate. But there is a value in the numbers as well. Seven is the Hebrew number of completeness. At its simplest, then, one of the things being communicated here in Genesis 1 is that God completely completed and created completely everything. Right? The fact that we've got this seven over and over and over again is saying that all the things that are or exist are made through God. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that have been created have been created through Him. Nothing that's been created has been outside of Him. We see it in these multiple places. The sevens we see here are an expression of the complete, completed completion of the creation, right? All right, one more important thing before we move past patterns. If you remember one thing moving forward related to patterns, remember this one. So it's a word we've talked about before. It's the word chiasm. Does anybody remember chiasm from before? Probably not. Yeah, some about so that's good. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually atbash, um, but we're going to refer to them moving forward now as chiasms because it's more common. Chiasm is actually Greek. Um, but by the end of Genesis, you're going to be really familiar with this word. 
because chiasms are the most common literary tool related to patterns in Scripture. They're all over the place. The, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, they're, all, they're everywhere. So what is a chiasm? The word itself is based off the Greek letter chi. So if you were part of a fraternity, what's the Greek letter chi? What does it look like? Anybody? X. There you go. It's an X, right? Greek letter chi is just an X. And so uh, we call it a chiasm because it's when a text in, in, intentionally mirrors itself. So you kind of come into a point and then the other half of it mirrors that particular point. So you can think, when you think of a chiasm, think of an X. And like we said, they're all over the place. There's one in every single one of the first 11 books of the Bible. So if you're going to read through the, 11, the first 11 books of the Bible, there's a chiasm in every single one. Genesis 17 is one giant chiasm. The Gospel of Mark is one giant chiasm. The entire thing is a chiasm, right? <clears throat> now remember when I said I think I know why Genesis 7 starts in Genesis 2, which again, not part of the biblical authors, but somebody organized it that way. This is my guess, and it's because Genesis 1 is a chiasm. On day 1, God creates the day and separates it from night. On day 4, he fills the day with the greater light and the lesser night. Day 1 and day 4 mirror each other. Day 2, water separates from sky, and day 5 fills the water, then the sky. Day 2 and day 5 mirror each other. Day three, land from sea. Day six, the land is filled with animals and people. Day three and day six mirror each other. It's a giant X. It's a chiasm. Now, we mentioned that they're all over scriptures, but how do we understand them? First, just understanding how they organize scripture helps us understand what we're reading and how it fits together, but it's more important than that. Remember, we said a chiasm shaped like an X. Well, that image is really helpful because the center of a chiasm is supposed to be the most important thing communicated. It's the, mo it's the climax, if you will, of the particular chiasm. A great way to remember that is just X marks the spot. Where's the center of the chiasm? That's the thing that they're trying to communicate with you. Right? I mentioned that Mark is a giant chiasm. Mark is 16 chapters, making the middle chapter 8, which is the story when Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah. The climax of the book of Mark is when the disciples finally realize that Jesus, who Jesus is, which is fascinating. So then, what's the center of Genesis 1? I'm going to run out of time. I've got to go faster. Uh, it's a single Hebrew word. It's the word mode, which is in verse 14, which is translated sacred times. It's a Hebrew word that is used to talk about sacred times like festivals, but often used to talk about the Sabbath. See, I think day seven is taken out of the chiasm to emphasize the point. The center of the chiasm is about Sabbath. And then day seven is repeated outside of the chiasm to emphasize the center of it. Oops. Oh, no. My whole notes just changed because there was a... There we go. Now I got it. Oh little notification popped up and I tried to get rid of it and then it took my notes away and then I reset my whole thing. Now I'm back. Um, now, the center, center of the chiasm is Sabbath, day seven is taken out to emphasize that point. Now that might feel a little underwhelming for you, right? We built up this big buried treasure thing and what we get is Sunday. Well, actually Saturday because that's when Jewish people would have celebrated Sabbath. But there's more. It's widely accepted that Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, meaning the first people to read Genesis were recently freed slaves out of Exodus, right? The stories that were, the, the stories that we're reading were first given to Israelites who were recently set free after spending 430 years in slavery to the Egyptians. Exodus tells us that the pharaohs were brutal, that they were beaten, that the Israelites were beaten to produce more, more bricks, more bricks, more bricks, more, more, more. Your value is related to how much you can produce. So do we see in Exodus, the Israelites then cry out to God and he frees them to write a new story. And Genesis 1 is how they begin that new story. And when we understand that, Genesis 1 begins to reveal even more beautiful things. First, the chief god of the Egyptians is the god Ra. Does anyone know who the, what, god, what Ra was the god of? The sun, right? 
all of a sudden some connections might be coming into place. Greater and lesser life. When Moses is going to write Genesis, he says, you're coming out of Egypt, where, God, where Ra reigned. I'm not even going to give Ra a, a, the, the dignity of a name in Genesis 1. God made greater lights and he made lesser lights. He didn't, Ra is nothing. God is, God is. He created what Ra is, and I'm not even going it's like, to, it's like when you write the devil and don't give it a capital D, right? It's kind of like a literary poke. I'm not even going to name Ra. You've lived under Ra for the last 400 years. Yeah, he's a greater light, whatever. The center of Genesis 1 is Moed, Moed, rest. Day 7 is pulled out of the chiasm to emphasize that God is not like Pharaoh. He's greater than Ra, and he doesn't rule like Pharaoh. At the center of creation is rest. Actually, a few weeks from now, Lisa is going to be teaching us on Sabbath. We'll realize how big of a deal that actually is. We'll talk about how we do that better. But after creation, the first thing that God does is rest. Why? So he can enjoy his creation. Evening comes before morning, so rest. You enjoy, the, uh, enjoy life with me, God says. Yes, there's work, but it'll be there tomorrow. Today we party. That our week actually begins out of rest, not recovering to do more work. I hope you're starting to see that Genesis 1 is communicating a lot of things to us. God made everything completely. We saw that. Rest sits in the middle of it all, which, which is communicating a whole bunch of things as well. It's written to a group of freed slaves that says, that coming out of Egypt, which says you are what you produce. You are what you do. That's your value. But God says, you're my beloved, and let's enjoy our time together. And so let's begin with rest. In other words, we're not slaves. Instead, we're created to be with God and for joy. And we could keep going with the many, many different things Genesis 1 is communicating. Deep, meaningful truths about the power of God, the fact that all things that were created were created through him, about his relationship to his creation, about our purpose and value, about his superior to Egyptian gods or other gods in the world. We, we see even communicated who God is and what that means to us. There's so much here. But I'm going to leave you to explore what some of those might be. There's so much in Genesis 1. Last week we saw where we started the story matters. And at the very beginning, it's layered with deep and significant meaning. Hopefully you've been able to see today how we read this story matters. Because if this story was just about, simply about seven-day creationism versus long-time creationism, we can spend hundreds of years arguing it and miss everything, right? We can miss layers and layers and layers of beauty about who God is and what it means to us and how we should interact with, with the people around us in society in those spaces, if we force Genesis 1 to speak in what we understand truth to be, if we force the Bible into the scientific method or anything like that, we miss so many things it's actually trying to communicate. We miss the beauty. We miss the depth. We miss the intentionality. Even if we capture a single truth, we may miss ten more. It also brings us to a place of humility when we do that as well, to realize that it's possible when we understand that Scripture is this layered and complex that good, honest, Jesus-seeking people can come to different conclusions, right? At men's group this week, there, there were a number of people went and saw Jeremy act like an ape, which was, which was fun, right? That's great. Uh, and then there were four of us that were able that stayed back and just had a, a conversation. And one of it, one of the questions that came up is like, what the, what's the deal with all these different denominations, right? Why do we have so many? Why do we separate on all of these things? And it's because we've we forced our understanding of what's truth into those spaces to say, I am the only group of people that figured it out, which is arrogant and not helpful, and can miss a whole bunch of different things. What we can recognize in this space is that denominations have their, their place or their value, and we can talk about that later. 
But we can also come at the scripture humbly to recognize that when scripture is this layered, the beauty of it's going to take us a long time to figure out. And so someone may get a different conclusion. But it can keep us united in Christ to recognize that somebody may have captured a beauty that I missed or something that reveals more of who God is that I didn't see. My hope is that as you leave today, you can take the three practices. If we can throw those back up again, Reese, that would be great. The three practices we talked about and apply them to Scripture. Each and every story we read in Genesis or wherever you read through the rest of Scripture, ask yourself these questions. What kind of story am I reading? And how does that affect the way I understand it? What's the elephant in the room? What are the strange things here that I didn't know were there before? And what are the patterns that we see? And then wrestle with Scripture. Scripture itself tells us to do that. Wrestle with it. Figure out what those things mean. Find the depth. Find the beauty. Find the different things that are going on there. If you put work into Scripture that way, I promise you, you'll spend less time arguing about some of the dumb things we argue about or we split ourselves on. And what you will find is that Scripture is so beautifully layered with all of the significant meaning that draws you near to who God is and how he's asked us to care for each other. Will you pray with me? Hey, Father God, we, we just come before you this morning again. I just want to thank you for, the, for, for how you communicated through Scripture. Even a, a short story like Genesis 1, we realize that so many different truths are communicated. That we can spend years just kind of just looking at whether, whether we focus on the sevens or the threes, whether we focus on it being good or the spaces created, whatever it might be, that all of these different things are communicated about who you are, your power over, over creation, your power over the, the structures that we create, the, the, your deep and meaningful love for us. And Lord, we pray that, that as we go through Genesis this year, that we don't get distracted by things that aren't trying to be communicated, but instead... That each story we read, we're able to see the depth and the beauty present in each of them. May our, may our love and, and understanding of Scripture blossom this year. To make it, to move from elementary understandings, which are, which are good for a time, spiritual milk, if you will, and move into these, these meatier, more complicated things that we can chew on and wrestle with. All so that we understand who you are better, to understand who we are better, so that we can love you more and as a result, love each other more as well. Amen.